Well, our primary text this morning comes to us from Isaiah 55. We're going to read that whole chapter. I think it really probably is one of the most uh, beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Uh, it's a sort of passage where it almost feels wrong to, to preach on it. It seems like we should just read it together like 15 times uh, just because it has so much power in and of itself. Uh, but I will endeavor to, to preach on it, not that I can improve upon it, but hopefully I can make the riches that are there in Isaiah 55 clear. And so Moira will come and read for us from Isaiah 55. And what Isaiah 55 really is, is just an invitation to come to the Lord. It's God asking us to respond to him and to come to him. And so we're going to look at a couple other invitations, in particular in the New Testament, where we also see God inviting us to come to him. And so Sean will come up for us and read for us from John 6, where Jesus is inviting people to come to him in the very same words that we see in Isaiah chapter 55. And then finally, Nate will come and read for us what is probably the most simple invitation to come to the Lord in all the Bible, Mark 1.15, which is the same invitation that we are to extend as we go about our lives. Um, and so let's hear these invitations of God and just revel in how God does indeed invite us to come to him. So Moira, you can come up now. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. John six twenty six. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw things, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, 
What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 As Jesus was going through Galilee, he went saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, the text that we've been in for the last couple weeks with Isaiah 53 and then 54 and now 55 form a nice uh, three-part series. In 53, we heard about what Christ, what the servant will do, how he will bear our iniquities and take away all of our sins. And then right after that, in chapter 54, we heard about about the many benefits that will come about as a result of Christ's great work. How we will receive a new family, we will receive inner beauty, we will receive a new identity and so much more. So we read about all the benefits of the work of this servant. And now in 55, all that is left is invitation. All that is left is the question, will you come? Will you come to this Messiah who takes away all your sins? Will you come to this Messiah who gives you a new family, a new identity, inner beauty, and all these things? Will you come to this banquet of fine food? Will you come to Jesus Christ? And so let this be the first lesson of the message this morning that we have not fully proclaimed the gospel until we have also proclaimed how someone can come to Jesus Christ, how someone can respond to the gospel. It is a great thing to tell someone about what Jesus did and about how they can benefit from what Jesus did. But unless you direct them in how to respond to the work of Jesus, you've still left them somewhat in the dark. Our gospel proclamation must include this invitation that we see in Isaiah 55. We must not only tell people that Jesus died for their sins, we must also say, come now, come and believe in this Messiah. And so the question is, how do we respond? How do we come to Jesus Christ? And that is the question that Isaiah 55 is going to answer for us. Now, what I want to do in this message first is kind of take a big picture look from what we know, primarily from the New Testament, about how we are to respond to Jesus Christ, how we are to come to God. So I'm going to look at that first, and then after we've looked at that, we're going to return to Isaiah 55, and we're going to see how does Isaiah support this message of response, this message of faith that we see in the New Testament. Because when we come to the New Testament, the message of how to respond to Jesus Christ, how to come to God, is very clear. We come by faith, and we come by faith alone. Faith is the only required, and indeed it is the only acceptable way to respond to the work of Jesus Christ. If your response to Jesus Christ is not faith, 
if it is not simply receiving the work that Jesus himself has already performed, then that means that you must either reject Christ or you think yourself some kind of peer of Christ who can somehow earn what Jesus has done, who can somehow merit what Jesus did. And this is not how we are to respond to God. We cannot respond to Jesus by works or by paying for what he has done or in any other way, both because the work of Jesus Christ is priceless, right? So imagine someone who works at the Louvre and thinks that just because they work at the Louvre, therefore they should be given the Mona Lisa, right? You can't earn the Mona Lisa by working at the Louvre just by you cannot earn all the benefits of Jesus Christ just by doing some kind of service to him. So we can't earn the favor of God or the benefits of Jesus Christ because it's priceless, but also because our efforts will always and only be pathetic. We will always be like someone who has mud all over their bodies trying to wash some white piece piece of cloth and never really able to do so. We cannot perform acts that please God apart from the grace of God itself working in us. And so the only way we should ever understand ourselves as having any hope of coming to God is coming by faith alone. Coming simply saying, God, I believe that you have done this for me and I receive what you have done for me. And so again, we see that both in Isaiah 55 and we see that in the New Testament. And understanding what faith is, is one of the most simple, but also one of the most critical parts of the Christian life. If you don't understand faith, then your entire spiritual life can go awry very quickly in the rest of your life along with it. On the other hand, if you do understand what faith is, then you have a kind of north star that always guides you back to how you are to relate to God because we are always to relate to God in a posture of faith, in a posture of trust. And it's whenever we move away from a posture of faith to a posture of, oh, I can, I can work and get in God's good favor. I can give enough money to get in God's good favor. I can go to church enough to get in God's good favor. It's when we turn that way, when again, our whole relationship with the Lord is utterly lost and we go off into darkness. So from now until all eternity, we are to be pursuing faith in God. But again, what is faith? What does faith consist in? And we're going to look at this from Isaiah 55 in just a moment. But for now, let's step back and see what does the New Testament have to tell us about what faith in God truly is. Now, when I was growing up, I was taught that faith was a a movement of the heart. It's something that you did in your heart. And this is right. Faith is something that happens in your heart. But there was a mistake that was also made in almost all the churches that I grew up in, and that is that because they thought that faith was something that you did in your heart, they also thought that faith was a very small thing. And so when I was growing up, in sermon after sermon, I was told that if I would just respond by praying a certain prayer where I would admit that I'm a sinner and I ask for Jesus to come into my life, then that would mean that I had faith, that I believed. I had responded to God if I had prayed that prayer. If I had said, I'm a sinner and Lord Jesus, I want you in my life, then they said that that was faith and that was all there was to it. Now, what is 
right about this is that faith truly is a matter of the heart. Faith is not a great work that we can accomplish. It doesn't require any sort of external action. You can see that by looking no further than that thief that died on the cross right beside Jesus, where Jesus welcomed him into paradise that very day, even though that thief could do nothing, even to demonstrate that he had faith. All he could do was ask Jesus that he would be saved, and Jesus said, yes, you will be saved. So faith is something that takes place in the heart apart from anything we can do with our hands or with our mouths or anything else. Faith is an internal response to God. And yet, even though it is an internal response to God, it is not a small or an easy response to God. So even though it is possible to simply pray a prayer, and that would be all the faith that you need to demonstrate, In order to be saved, normally, when people turn to faith in God, they are not hanging upon a cross. They have life life left to live. And so what does faith look like for them? Faith may still indeed begin with a prayer, but faith cannot end with a prayer. Faith is an internal move of the heart, but it must lead Just like every other feeling we have in our hearts, it must lead to actions with our mouths and with our bodies. In short, faith itself is not a work. It is not something that you can do. Romans 3.28 makes this very clear. It says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So clearly, faith is not a work. These two things are at odds. Faith is not a work. And yet, faith is an enormous move of the heart. So instead of faith being a work, Scripture presents faith as something that, in a real sense, almost happens to you more than it is something that you yourself do. Faith is is like waking up from sleep. It's like having a whole new sense of things. Faith is like seeing things in a whole new way. Whereas before, perhaps when you thought, of God, you thought, ah, doesn't seem very interesting to me. I don't see what the big deal is. When you come in faith, all of a sudden, it's like your eyes are open and you say, God is the most glorious being in all of existence. You have awakened from asleep. So, for example, when, when I think of Kirkland's premium vanilla ice cream, I don't have to try and work to recognize how good it is. I don't have to wake up and say, now, Rob, you know, this ice cream really isn't very good, but just remember how good it's supposed to be. You know, keep telling yourself that this is really good ice cream. And maybe someday when you taste it, you'll think that, yeah, this is really good ice cream. No, it doesn't work that way at all. I just have a sense. I have this taste that this is really good ice cream. And when I think of Kirkland premium vanilla ice cream, I just remember how sweet it is. I remember how good it melts in your mouth, how creamy it is, and all the good things about it. And so I just know instantaneously that this is good ice cream. I just have a sense in my heart. I have a taste for how good that ice cream is. Well, faith is like that. Again, it's not a work. It's not something we can perform. It's more of a way of looking at things that's different from how you used to look at things, different from how other people look at things. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul is describing what happens when someone comes to saving faith, this is what he says. 
He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that description of faith? It's like lights coming on in the darkness. God says, let there be light. All of a sudden there is light in your heart. And what do you see? You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whereas before you did not see Jesus as all glorious. You did not think that Jesus was all that good. You did not think that Jesus was worth giving your life to. Suddenly it's like a light has come on inside of you that faith has turned on. And suddenly you see the beauty of Jesus Christ and you see the glory of God. And so faith is is a simple acknowledgement of the goodness of God, of the glory of God. Right? I didn't make myself like ice cream and you can't make yourself like God. There are certain things we can do that might help turn our hearts to God, but ultimately we cannot do it ourselves. But when we have faith in God, it means that we indeed sense the goodness of God. We have this inner taste for him. We have these inner spiritual eyes that are open to him. When you think of God, you suddenly think, sweetness, goodness, light, beauty. And on the other hand, when you don't have faith in God and you think of God, you think, ah, boring or meh or not interested. You don't have a taste for the sweetness, the grandeur, the glory of God. Now, how do you know that you have this new sense of the heart? Well, in one sense, you know it subjectively and immediately, right? So I can't see it in you. I can't see in any of your hearts to know if you have faith, but you can see it in you. If I asked you to do a little free association test and just say, hey, tell me the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word God, does your face light up and smile? Or do you yawn? Or do you shrug your shoulders? Do you want to hide in fear? Do you want to talk about something else? If you don't know that you do have love for God, then that should be a pretty clear sign that you actually don't have love for God, that you've never tasted the sweetness or the goodness of God. So in this case, unlike a court of law, the absence of evidence is indeed evidence of absence. Again, with Kirkland Premium Vanilla Ice Cream. I don't have to think very hard about whether I like it or not. I simply do. It's great. And so my heart's response to God should be even more clear and more sudden and more obvious. But the better test, instead of just looking inward and and asking ourselves, how does my heart feel about God? The better test is the test of our actions. The actions we perform always spring from the things that our hearts love. So Jesus himself teaches us this in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what Jesus is giving us here is a principle 
that we should be able to know what is in our hearts by the actions that we perform and by the words that we speak. The heart comes first, and then the actions in the words follow. It's not the other way around. So in other words, I can say that I think that Kirkland Premium Vanilla Ice Cream is really amazing, but if I'm at the store and it's on sale for $4, and I'm all out of ice cream, and it's a hot day, and I have money, and I don't buy it, well, it's fair to say in that case that you must not actually like this kind of ice cream. Even if you say you do, if you are there and you have the opportunity to buy it, and there's every reason to do so, and you just decide, no, I don't really want to, well, this is an indication in your actions that you do not have a taste for that kind of ice cream. You do not have a heart that desires that. I may have thought that I liked it. I may have told other people that it was my favorite. But by that action, it's clear that I do not like that ice cream. In the same way, you can look inside your heart and you can think that you have genuine love for God. You can go around and you can tell other people that you're a Christian and that you really love Jesus Christ and you're really glad that he died for your sins. But if you go about your life and you never have any interest in reading your Bible, if you have never interest and never have any interest in praying and speaking to this God who did such a wonderful thing to you, if you never have any desire to sing to the Lord for what he's done, then be assured of this. You don't have faith. You have not trusted in God. You don't have a new sense of things. You don't see clearly how good God is. Your eyes have not been opened. And so do you see in this way how faith can both not be a work and yet require works? Faith itself is simply perfect acceptance, perfect trust. Faith itself is an acknowledgement that in ourselves, we can do nothing good and we need the grace and mercy of God. Faith is simply to be aware of and to bask in the goodness of God and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. Faith is pure receiving. It is pure getting. Faith is not at all a performing. But if you have this perfect acceptance, this perfect trust, if you have this sense where you kind of bask in the goodness of God and all that he's done for you, then how could you not want to get up and serve him? How could you not want to get up and pray to him? How could you not want to seek after him and to know him? If you have faith, then you will have love flowing out of your heart. Faith and love, faith and action go hand in hand. If you do not have the latter, if you do not have action, if you do not have love, then you do not have the former. You do not have faith. And not because they are the same thing. Again, they are totally different things. But because one always leads to the other. Faith always leads to good works. This is why Jesus could say, as we read in Mark 1.15, that we must repent and believe the gospel. Repenting and believing are not two separate things, per se. Like, One thing you have to do is repent and another thing you have to do is believe. 
Rather, when you believe, that is when you have faith, when your eyes are opened, then you necessarily repent. Then you necessarily turn away from all of your sins. The clearest example of how this works in all the scriptures, I think, is the parable of the treasure hidden in the field in Matthew 13, verse 44. It's just a one-verse parable. It goes like this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, what is the moment of faith in this parable? When is it that this person in this parable trusted in God? I would say that the moment of faith, that that advent, that arrival of saving faith, is when the man found the treasure hidden in the field. When he found the treasure hidden in the field, that's when his eyes were opened to see something that he had never seen before. He might have walked through that field a thousand times, never knowing that there was a treasure buried right under that field. But one day he has this realization that there is a treasure in this field. His eyes are opened. He has faith. And so what does he do now that he has his faith, now that he recognizes the treasure hidden in the field? Does he say, oh, well, I'm so glad to know there's a treasure here. I'm just going to go about my day. He doesn't do that at all. The text says that he goes and in his joy, he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Beloved, his faith is turned into action. When his eyes are opened, he realizes what is truly a priceless treasure. And when he realizes what is truly a priceless treasure, he is willing to leave behind everything else. And so this can make sense for us of how Jesus can say in Luke 14, 33, for example, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Is Jesus saying that if we want to be saved, we have to do this great work? That if you want to be saved, you have to renounce all that we have, we have to sell everything we own, so you can't be a Christian if you own anything? No, Jesus isn't saying that. This is the same Jesus that we read speaking in John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, just come to me. Just believe. But guess what? If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if your eyes are open to what he has done, to how much he loves you, to how good he is, that is, if you come to him as a treasure hidden in a field, then how could you not want to sell everything you own and buy that field? Again, not because you have to, not because it's required, but because you get to. Because this treasure is there and you now see it and you can sell everything that you have and you can have that field. Indeed, just a few verses earlier in Luke 14, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
And then the very next verse, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross, an instrument of execution and torture, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus requiring works for salvation? No, not at all. He is requiring faith. But he is making clear what faith will make us do. And if faith doesn't make you willing to do those things, then you do not have faith. I remember how before we got married, my wife told me that she would be happier living with me in some hut in some Middle Eastern desert, if God called us there, than having some nice house in suburban America. Now, I don't know if she's changed her mind since then because she knows me a little better now. But when she said that, she was giving a great illustration of what faith says. And all of us are the bride of Jesus Christ. All of us are to look to Jesus Christ as our spouse. And so we have this question, would you be happier living in a hut in the middle of the Sahara with Jesus than in some nice house here in the Pittsburgh suburbs without Jesus? If you can't say yes to that question, if you're not sure how you would respond in that way, then you do not have saving faith. Because the one who has saving faith knows that Jesus is better than life. And it is better to die and have Christ than to live a glorious life and to not have him. Just speaking for myself, if I knew tomorrow that Jesus wanted me to pack up and go to Mecca and preach the gospel until I was stoned to death, I would be so happy to get such a clear direction from the Lord and to be able to follow him in such a clear way, even though I would know how painful it would be. I would be able to know the sufferings of my Savior and I would be able to please him and serve him. And this, beloved, is simply the normal response for anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, who has tasted of his sweetness and knows that there is nothing better in life than the living for him, than knowing him and serving him. And so faith understands that sin-bearing work that we read of in Isaiah 53. Faith understands all these mind-boggling benefits of knowing Christ that we read of in Isaiah 54. And so then when we come to Isaiah 55, faith says, I want to come. I want to come to you, Lord. Whatever it takes, whatever I have to give up, whatever I have to leave behind, I want to come to you. And so in conclusion, and to this first part of the message of what is New Testament faith, We see clearly that, number one, faith is not a work. Faith is not something that we can do. Instead, faith is an internal disposition of the heart. It's something that we feel in our hearts, whereby we accurately comprehend the value of God. Where we accurately comprehend the value of God. In the statement of faith that we would like for you to adopt As a church, we'll be introducing the statement of faith at the coming members meeting, so we encourage you all to come to that to hear more about that. But part of that statement of faith is to define what saving faith is. And 
in that document, we've put it this way. We say, saving faith includes, number one, accepting the historical facts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Number two, comprehending the meaning of Jesus' work, that he alone accomplished God's plan of redemption. And number three, joyfully resting in Jesus' redeeming work for us particularly. So faith both has a mind that understands what Jesus has done, but then also has this heart that joyfully rests in all that Jesus has won for us. And so, if we have saving faith, it means that we have accepted the wonder of Jesus Christ's work for us to save our souls. And we want to live for Him both now and forever. So, with that background of the New Testament teaching on the nature of saving faith, how does Isaiah 55 compare? What do we see in Isaiah 55 that lines up with what we see in the New Testament? Well, I want you to see three primary truths about saving faith here in Isaiah 55. And as I speak these, I think you will see how they mirror the same kind of words about saving faith that we just saw in the New Testament. Because here in Isaiah 55, this is Jesus saying that if you want to come to me, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to know God, if you want to come to me, then this is how you come. And so the very first thing that I want us to see in Isaiah 55 is that we must come to Jesus as our all-sufficient standing before God. We must come to Jesus as our all-sufficient standing before God. In other other words, we cannot think that there is anything that we can do to add to Jesus' work, anything that we can do to contribute to Jesus' work. We must simply come to Jesus as the one who is already all-sufficient, who has already done everything that needs to be done. We see this clearly in Isaiah 55, verse 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, God is saying, if you want to come to me, you can't come with money. You can't come with your good works. You can't come thinking that you can in any way earn this offer that I am giving. You must come empty-handed. You must come recognizing that I myself, God, has done all that is required, and as you come, you only receive. You come without money and without cost. Indeed, the whole tone of Isaiah 55 is the tone of God offering blessing upon blessing upon blessing to someone who could not earn his blessing, who gets much more than what they deserved. Now, I know that we may think that this is really good news, that we can come to God without money and without cost, but the human heart is actually quite resistant to this reality. We humans are very proud, and we don't like to see ourselves as mere beggars who get invited to a rich feast. No, we want to pay for it ourselves. We want to contribute. Our pride resists us becoming these objects of charity like Isaiah 55 is portraying us. We don't like being objects of charity because we perceive rightly that if we are peers of God, that is, if we contribute something, if if he gives something and we give something, well, then we have some grounds to negotiate with God. 
We can say, well, God, you can't really expect me to give up all that I have. You can't really expect me to take up a cross. You can't really expect me to reject my family on behalf of you. After all, I brought something to this relationship as well. What about my contribution? And so we see that if we don't have any contribution, that if salvation is all a free grace, if we contribute nothing and God contributes everything, well, that also means that there is no limit to what God can ask of us because we are infinitely in his debt because there was nothing that we contributed. We have no grounds for negotiation. We are the beggars. We have been given bread. All we can do is say, thank you. How can I respond? What can I do to show my gratitude? And so even though on the one hand, it is glorious news that we cannot do anything to contribute to our salvation, because if we did have to contribute, we could not. It is very good news. On the other hand, that means that there is no limit, beloved, to what God can expect of us, because he has done everything for us. And so if he asks us for everything, it is fully within his rights. And so saving faith means we recognize that Jesus has done it all. And therefore, we owe all to him. The second thing that we see is true about saving faith here in Isaiah 55 is that if we come to God, we must come to him as the satisfaction of our souls. We must come to him as the satisfaction of our souls, as the greatest treasure. This is so clear in the first three verses of Isaiah 55. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. So that's the first image we get. Someone who is thirsty wants water. And God is saying, I am the water. Come to the waters. And then he goes on. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy, buy what? Buy wine and milk. These two things that are always seen as being rich and satisfying foods, good wine and, and filling milk. This is what we get when we come to the Lord. Isaiah goes on in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. When we come to God, we must come to him as the satisfaction for our souls, the one who fills our souls. And then verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Our souls only live. Our souls only come alive when we are responding to God in faith. One of the truths, in fact, probably the biggest truth that changed my life and finally opened my heart to receive Jesus Christ is that God does not merely desire to be worshipped or served or known or any other action that you can do with your head or with your hands. No, what God desires most is to be delighted in. What he desires most is to be loved. Pastor John Piper is famous for his phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is how we glorify God in our lives, by being satisfied with him, not just by knowing things about him, not just by serving him as if it is our duty, 
Not just by showing up at church because we know we're supposed to show up at church. No, when we come to Him as the one who can satisfy our souls. That is when we come to God in faith. Beloved, God made us in such a way that He is perfectly fitted to satisfy our every longing. Just like a hammer that's used to do something other than pound nails might work for another purpose, but it isn't serving its real purpose until it's operating according to its real design, until you're actually hammering a nail with a hammer. The hammer isn't being used the way it's supposed to be used. In the same way, the human heart was designed to be ravished by God himself. To find an intense desire and delight for the Lord of the universe. He is not merely glorious or powerful or great or majestic. No, above all, he is good. He is sweet to the taste. He can satisfy your soul more than anything else can. Have you ever come to God? Not merely as a God who deserves your worship, but as a God who can satisfy your every longing, as a God who can satisfy your soul? If not, then come this morning. Come and you will find wine and milk and rich food and true life when you come to the Lord. That's what you find as satisfaction for your soul. And finally, this explains how we must come to God in the third way. And that is in repentance, forsaking all wickedness. Look at verses 6 to 9 of Isaiah 55. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, look at the beginning of verse 7 one more time. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So this is talking about repentance, talking about turning away from the life we had before we came to God. We forsake our ways and we forsake our thoughts. And now look at verse 8. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God is saying the magnitude of repentance that we must perform. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So can you see, beloved, how this invitation to come to Jesus can be both free without money, without cost, and it can call for repentance in this dramatic change of life? Beloved, if you think you have come to Jesus Christ, but your life looks little different than the world's in terms of how you spend your money or how you spend your time, if you think you've come to Jesus, but you do not apply yourself to be obedient to every last command that he gives, then you have not truly come to Jesus, beloved. You have not yet recognized the freeness of God's mercy to you. You have not yet recognized the satisfaction that God can give to your soul. The only way we can ultimately determine if we have this faith that has come to these waters 
is if we have responded in repentance. This is why we here at Providence, we don't do altar calls at the end of the service. It's why I don't encourage someone to pray a prayer as their sign of faith in God. The true sign of faith in God in the scriptures is always very clear. The sign of faith is obedience. It is repentance. So I welcome you to come to Jesus Christ this morning. Again, this is an inner work of the heart that can happen in your heart this very moment. Your eyes can be opened and you can see how beautiful God is. That is, you can have eyes of faith. But if that happens to you this morning, do you know how you show that? You don't show that simply by praying a prayer. You don't show that just by always coming to church. You show that by repenting of every last sin that you know of and by doing that over and over for as long as you live. You obey Jesus Christ. So those are the three things I wanted us to see about saving faith from Isaiah 55. That God has done it all, that he is the satisfaction of our souls, and that we must repent if we have true faith. Now finally, I just want to ask one more question because this question is also answered here in Isaiah 55. And that is, how can we have any hope that anyone will make such a dramatic transition? Why should we have any hope that someone would want to give up a cushy American life and turn to Jesus Christ in genuine faith? Oftentimes, I can mourn that our baptismal waters here at Providence are so still. Why do so few people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Now, there are a number of different ways to answer that, but Isaiah 55 gives us the ultimate reason for any hope that we want to have of anyone ultimately turning to Jesus Christ. Because if what I have just presented about genuine faith is true, then we see that coming to faith in Jesus Christ is indeed a hard calling. Again, like Jesus said, you have to forsake all that you own. Who would want to come to this Jesus? How can hearts be changed in such a radical way? Do we have to find ways to sweeten the deal? We have to entice people in in one way and then maybe later on tell them, well, this is what real saving faith is. I don't think we have to do any of those things. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is that word that goes forward from the mouth of God? It is the very words of Isaiah 55 verse 1. It is the words, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. This is God saying those words. And beloved, if God says those words, then those words will accomplish the purpose for which he sends them. 
There will be souls that are awakened, that were once in utter darkness, not seeing the beauty of God, not willing to give up the smallest thing in order to serve God, and suddenly their hearts become alive with faith, and they see how good God is, and they want to forsake all that they own in order to get this treasure hidden in the field. And so, beloved, my plea to you this morning, just speaking in behalf of God, is come. Come to these waters. They are good waters. They are the best of waters. They do not cost you anything. Jesus has paid it all. Beloved, these waters are so good that you will want to give up everything to get them. And so come to these waters. Let's forsake all else. And come and rest in Jesus Christ as that priceless treasure hidden in the field, as the satisfaction of our souls. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we want to come. (laughs) We want to come just in the way you've described, Lord. We want to come to you as that rich wine and good milk and rich food. We want to come to you and live. And yet, Lord, we confess that our hearts so often are glued to lesser things. We need you, Lord, to speak a word to us right now. Speak a word to our hearts. Speak the word, come to our hearts, that we might be freed from all these chains that keep us attached to these lesser things and that we might be freed to run toward you with all that we are and with all that we have. Lord, we thank you for inviting us to you by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And I pray, Lord, that right now, everyone here, everyone present would in their hearts come to you, would forsake all other things and would place their faith in you. Lord, would you now receive our prayers of confession and petitions?